We have a series that we've been working through called Jesus is Famous, life encountering, uh, life-changing encounters with Jesus. So we're going to get started on today's encounter this Sunday, and then finish this encounter next Sunday, okay? So my hope is that by the time we're done today, you'll say, this is kind of a cliffhanger. I am coming back next Sunday to see it resolve. Episode two. How about that? Episode two next Sunday. All right? So uh, we're actually looking today at an encounter that Jesus has with someone. Actually, this encounter ends up being a memorable, significant, uh, in large part, famous encounter with Jesus that he has with somebody uh, right at uh, the village well. And you'll recognize this. He has an encounter with a woman at the well who's an outsider. Some of you who know the Bible, what kind of woman is this? Samaritan woman. Good. Samaritan woman. So this is a famous encounter. It's, a, um, it's something that people, when they think about Jesus, this is the kind of encounter that they think of. This is the kind of encounter that they've learned of and remembered. And um, In John chapter 3, Jesus meets a highly moral religious professor who has all the power and all the influence. And I don't think it's any mistake that he follows that up with Jesus having a different encounter with someone who has no power, is completely marginalized, and is the opposite end of the social spectrum than the religious professor. This is someone who is a social, moral, religious, cultural outcast. And the reason that these two encounters appear together back to back is because it's likely that John, who wrote the gospel, wants us to encounter them back to back and wants us to see the contrast and wants us to see how Jesus deals. Remember last week I said, well, Jesus doesn't really kind of ease into his conversation with the religious professor. He like, boom, hits him right away. Remember I said that? Now he's facing who everybody would recognize as the town sinner and he doesn't hit her the same way. And we're going to look carefully at how he deals with this woman at the well because on the surface, both the religious professor and the Samaritan woman at the well are very, very different. On the surface, they look like they're completely opposite ends of the spectrum. But under the surface, what we learn here in the Gospel of John is that they are the same sinner separated from God by their own failures and flaws. And we get a good look at this uh, closely together here. What do they have in common? They are separated from God from their own sin, the sin of their own self-righteousness. And we're going to look at the Samaritan woman's sin and how it kind of plays out. And so this is the person, the Samaritan woman, who has a life of quote-unquote sin that most people would recognize. Most people would say, oh yeah, in the Bible, I'm sure she's the one that's considered a sinner. Look how it goes here. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, now Jesus is there at the well. He's there by himself because his disciples went to pick up their Grubhub order and they're gone for lunch. They're going to bring it back. Didn't want to pay the delivery fee. Very frugal, Jesus. Good steward. Anyone else in non-delivery fee people? I was non-delivery fee before COVID, and then after COVID, I'm like, $7 for delivery, that's nothing. Then inflation, I'm like, $7 is like a lot. It fluctuates. 
It fluctuates. So Jesus is by himself, and he says, please, to the Samaritan woman, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food, and the woman was surprised. She was surprised. Some translations say she was shocked. For Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, she wasn't pointing out that Jesus, um, and, or that she didn't have anything to give him. What is she pointing out? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You know, she wasn't like uh, pointing out uh, really a whole lot to notice about drinking. It has more to do with the fact that Jesus initiates a conversation. This is one of the most radical parts of the story is that Jesus initiates a conversation with this woman. We have a hard time picturing this because in our culture, it's just polite to initiate a conversation with anybody. Um, how, many of you had, how many of you tend to be initiate conversation with anybody people? In lines, grocery stores, how many of you also have had teenagers who are ashamed that you exist because you're talking to another human being? I, I, I did not see this coming, that at some point or other, my children would be ashamed of my existence that I, because I initiated a conversation with a human being I didn't know. It's amazing. It's so easy to embarrass the kids. At some point, you realize, oh, I see, they're embarrassed of me because I exist on the planet. That's what it really is all about. Um, so so um, Jesus starts this conversation, and that's not the shocking part. That's not the part that is really hard to grasp. And it doesn't seem unusual for us to see two people talking at a well, but it should. It should be shocking. It should be stunning to us. And you'll notice that she is shocked by this. And the reason is because the Jews and the Samaritans are bitter enemies. They are bitter enemies. They are rivals. They are uh, at tribal war with one another. Centuries before this, most Jews were exiled to Babylon when they were conquered. And some of the Jews who stayed behind intermarried with the Canaanites. And they ended up creating their own tribe. Uh, they ended up essentially forming this tribe called Samaritans. So it was diluted, it was mixed, it was inconsistent, it was impure, and parts of Jewish religion put together and mixed with Canaanite religion, and they came up with their own uh, syncretistic religion. And so, the Jews, to them, the Samaritans, were a racially inferior heretic. <laughs> so, that's kind of a powder keg. If we had time, we'd dissect that. But to them, to the Jews, the Samaritans were a racially inferior tribe of heretics. So, they were violating the Jews' conscience by their existence, right? So, they are enemies that go all the way back and it was scandalous for this Jewish man to be talking to the Samaritan woman, much less to initiate this conversation, much less that this Samaritan was a woman, and even worse, that this was happening in public. 
So it's getting tense here, and it is getting um, pretty strange. Now, also, we have this woman drawing water, John says, at noon, in the middle of the day. This is not common. This helps us understand what's happening here. But biblical scholars point out why she might be drawing water at noon. It was common for women to draw water in the morning before the noon sun, before it was hot. But she was not. And biblical scholars answer this question, why was she there alone? Why was she in the middle of the day? Why didn't she draw water with the rest of the women in the village early in the morning? And the answer is quite likely because she, even among the Samaritans, was a moral outcast. It was quite likely that she herself was a complete outsider, even within her very own class of marginalized society. So, Jesus here is doing something extraordinary and special. When He speaks to her, He is deliberately reaching across almost every man-made barrier that could exist in society. And He is reaching across with His voice. And you're going to see how He doesn't just reach across with His voice, He reaches across with His compassion on her and with her. He is deliberately reaching across every significant barrier and boundary that society had put in place and had divided the classes with and divided the tribes with. The racial barrier, the cultural barrier, the moral barrier, the gender barrier, the religious male, that that he, a religious Jewish male, should have anything to do with her. He should never have anything to do with her. But he cares more about her than he does about society's barriers and boundaries and the cultural barriers that exist between the two people groups. Now, can you see how radical that is? And by the way, it just so happens. I mean, of course, this reminds me of what you were saying, Jack. It just so happens that the disciples slipped away at this moment for Jesus to be alone with her. I imagine now Jesus knowing what was coming and kind of asking them to slip away or urging them or prompting them to slip away because he, know he, was, he knew that he was going to need a one-on-one conversation with them before they all started freaking out. Remember they were freaking out that Jesus was talking to kids? Imagine what they would have done if he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Probably lose their mind. Probably vote him off the island. He reaches across all these human divisions to connect with her, and she is shocked. And we should be shocked too. She's amazed, and we should be amazed. Now, how does Jesus reply to her when she says, uh, excuse me, I don't know if you noticed, but Samaritan woman, Jewish rabbi, I don't know if you notice what's happening here. What does Jesus say to her? Jesus says, well, if you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me to give, and I would give you living water. You would ask me, and I would give you living water. Now he's bringing up something so life-changing. He's starting to bring this conversation less around the well water and more about a different kind of water that satisfies her thirst. Jesus goes on to say, anyone who drinks this water in this well that you and I are meeting over will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. So there's physical water, and then there's a different kind of water that I give out. There's a different kind of water that I give out. And if you drink this water, thirsty again. If you drink my water, satisfied. 
forever. And he says, it becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, within the person's heart, giving them eternal life. So this is what this uh, living water does. Now, so the next part, not only does Jesus initiate a conversation, but the next part of this encounter that's so important is this. Jesus eases into confrontation with this Samaritan woman. Right? Last Sunday, when talking to the religious professor, Jesus, he, didn't, he wasn't harsh, but he was direct. Now this, he starts to kind of move the conversation in the, in the, in the direction that's going to most help her. And so he eases into a confrontation with her, but he does so with gentleness and compassion. He does so uh, by saying, if you knew who I was, you would ask me. Right? You don't really know who I am, otherwise you'd be asking me and I'd give you a satisfying... Now, he's talking, of course, um, about a fresh... When he says fresh, bubbling stream, some translations that you have and you've read and you're familiar with say living water. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is talking about something that is moving. It's a metaphor referring to living water that, that kind of like signifies eternal life. It also, um, you have to keep this in mind, thirst is lost on us. Most of us don't spend uh, very much time being thirsty. Why? Because we have easy access to water. And because we have easy access to water, we don't quite understand in the United States how much this metaphor means when somebody is thirsty. Those who lived in arid climates next to a desert, they know a lot about it. They know a lot about words like... um, What's that? Uh, parched, right? Like I'm, I have, uh, I'm, I'm losing all my hydration. Our bodies contain so much water. So to be in profound thirst is technically to be in agony. It's agonizing. Um, think of it like some of you who go like weeks without pizza. It's like that. You imagine that? No ice cream for days. Like death is next after that for some of us. Thirsty. Profound agony, and then to taste water, and then to get a sip. Do you remember there's this, there's this parable that Jesus tells a story that at the end there is so much suffering that one particular man says that I could just get a drop of water and just get it on my tongue because I'm dying of thirst. And this is what Jesus is, is, is quenching here. After you've been truly thirsty, there's nothing more satisfying than uh, experiencing this kind of water. So what Jesus is saying to this outcast is I have something for you. This is so critical. I have something for you that is as basic and necessary to your physical body as is basic and necessary for your spiritual life. I have something that you need. As water and the desperation you have for water is to you physically, I have something that will satisfy that desperation for you spiritually on the inside in your inner life, something without which you are absolutely agonizingly lost. So with this living water metaphor, even more than that, Jesus is telling us that what he has to offer us is life-saving. It's absolutely life-saving. He is revealing that his water satisfies from the inside. And this is so critical. And this is so important. He says, my water, when you get it, it will become in you a spring of well that's living and it leads to eternal life. 
It's alive. It's not a dead pool of water that has death and stagnation in it. It is a living water that's on the move. And when water is moving, what does it have in it? It has life. That's the kind of water that Jesus is offering here. It's deep. It's soul level. It's flowing. It's moving. It is incredibly satisfying. And it's a contentment that doesn't depend on anything that's happening on the outside. It has nothing to do with our circumstances. So let me ask you a question. Um, Are you in the mood to get a question today? I hope so, because I have to ask this question. It's my next slide. So I hope you're in the mood to ask this question. Here's here's the question. Just give give me... Lock into this real quick. You may not be able to answer this, but start thinking about this. And here's the question. What would make you happy? What would really give you a satisfying life? Now, you know how that saying goes that money doesn't buy happiness? Anybody else ever think, you know, I wouldn't mind trying? You know what I mean? Like, I don't, maybe that's true, but maybe not. Maybe not for me. What if I could? Well, almost... um, Here's the catch on this answer, okay? Here's the, here's the catch 22. This is why these are not really fair questions because I'm kind of trying to point out something. That it's quite likely that when we answer this question, most of the answers that we come up with are, they are something, an item, a person or a thing that is outside of us. It is something that happens to us. Or it is something that we gain or something that we get, something that we have. Some of us have our hopes set on this. It could be romantic love. It could be a successful career. It could be more wealth. Our hearts are set on um, a flourishing family, social cause. There's just limitless um, political victory, moral victories. And we, we just imagine all that it would do for us. If we had it, if I have that, or if I could get there, or, uh, and then I'll know something. I'll know I'm important. I'll know I'm successful. I'll know that I'm significant. I'll know that I have security. It's likely, the answer to that question is likely something outside of us. And yet Jesus says, this is not a quote, but here's what he's teaching. Jesus says, there's nothing outside of you that can truly satisfy the thirst that is deep down inside of you. So if you have a thirst that's outside of you, then it's very, very um, unlikely. It's impossible that that... If you have a thirst that's inside of you, it's very unlikely. It's impossible that you're going to satisfy that thirst with something outside of you. Um, In fact, I think it's C.S. Lewis or Tolkien who says, if you have a craving for, um, um, if you have this craving inside of you that nothing in this world can satisfy, it's likely that you were made for another world. And here's what Jesus is saying. Your thirst, you can continue to take it in from the outside, but you have a thirst inside of you, and I'm the only one who can satisfy that thirst. It's just me. It's only me. And to continue the metaphor further, um, it's interesting too that Jesus doesn't say, look, what you need is a little splash of water. Right? He doesn't say, you just need a little hit. You just need a little hold still. And Although this would be quite the scene in the Gospels. Just a little flick of water in her face, right? Doesn't need that. What does he say? He says, you have a thirst that is not satisfied by a little water in the face. 
You have a thirst that's so deep, it's on the inside of you, it's soul level, it's way under the surface. And the, the, the water itself has to be deep enough to get under the thirst. It's got to go under the thirst. It's got to be the source of your life, not just the splash of your life. And that's where this satisfaction starts to kind of take root. And Jesus says, this is so important, I can give it to you. Jesus, this is so important, he says, I can put it into you. Jesus himself says, I can give you absolute, unimaginable satisfaction. And I want to point out something. To those of you who are new to the church scene, I want to point this out to you. I want to point out what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say this, your church can give this to you. Your pastor can give this to you. Your own faithfulness will give this to you. He doesn't say, um, your favorite author and teacher will give this to you. And it's so vital that we point this out in our culture because we are so easily distracted trying to reach down and fill that inner thirst with someone or something, even if that someone or something is acting, teaching, leading, loving on behalf of God, it's still not the living water that leads to eternal life. It's Jesus alone. What does that mean? If you found yourself bounced out of our church, bounced out of another church, you found yourself uh, um, kind of like in the margins of your own life, you find yourself kind of losing track, losing touch, losing connection, losing contact. You found yourself somehow all by yourself, all alone, even marginalized in society. Here's the good news. You're not trying to fill your life with a new church and a new pastor and a new teaching and a new book and a new author and a new follow on social media. You literally just hear Jesus saying, if you knew who I was, and if you're as thirsty as you sense you are, as you know you are, if you know how thirsty you are, it's just me. Me alone, Jesus alone, is how we experience this inner living water of eternal life. Regardless, see, it happens in the core of your being regardless of what's happening on the outside, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your, uh, um, what's going on around you. But this is not easy. And here's how I'll finish today. This is not easy. Why isn't this easy? Here's the reason. Are you still with me? Okay. I mean, sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I don't know. Sometimes you don't know if I'm still with you, though, right? Isn't that true? Isn't that? But here's why this is hard. Here's where we just pause and we do a little reflection. This is why this is hard. Most of us, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say all of us. We don't really know how thirsty we are. We don't really know how thirsty we are. Now, have any of you ever, any of you ever consulted a nutritionist or a dietitian and they're like, so how much water are you drinking? And you're like, a lot. And they say something like, you should be drinking a gallon a day. And you're like, shut up. Shut up. A what? A gallon of water? Are you crazy? There's no way, right? So we think we're satisfying our thirst. And then someone drops this bomb. No, no. You don't need 32 ounces. You need a gallon of water right? Most of us also are unaware, completely out of tune with how thirsty we are, and here's the reason. 
The reason is because we misinterpret our thirst for ambition, for hope. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. This is interesting. This is um, helpful. Most of us aren't able to recognize our soul thirst for what it is. And as long as we think we have a pretty good chance of achieving our goals, we believe somehow that thirst is the, this, we haven't quite accomplished our goals. We haven't necessarily achieved our dreams. And we have anxiety over this, and we have hope that we're going to eventually one day do that. But while we're feeling thirsty for something on the inner life, we misrepresent it to feel like, no, we just have more to accomplish in life. I just haven't reached my goals yet. I haven't saved enough money yet. I haven't gone far enough in the company yet. I haven't had enough children yet. I haven't seen successes that I'm praying for and believing for. And so we misinterpret these dreams and ambitions that we have and our anxieties over not reaching our goals and accomplishing our successes that we imagine we misinterpret that and we think it's just anxiety related to we're just not going far enough, we're not going fast enough. And really what Jesus is teaching us here is that whatever it is that you thirst for on the inside, even when you achieve it, probably like most A-list celebrities, you can find almost any A-list celebrity um, who talks about their achievements, and eventually if you read enough of their interviews, you get to the part where they're like, it's so empty. It's such a dead end. Anybody remember Boris Becker? Boris Becker is uh, the youngest Wimbledon champ ever. Um... How many of you remember, um, let's see, I'll get, I'm going to drop another name on you. How many of you remember Sophia Loren? Do you know both of them said the same thing after they achieved their greatest success in their career? Both of them said, it's amazing how much I've achieved and how little it has satisfied me. I mean, so you can um, remember this. You experience your inner emptiness as drive. And your ongoing anxiety is hope that you're going to achieve your goals. And so a lot of us, we aren't able to detect the thirst because we just think we just have more to accomplish in life. That's where it's all coming from. And so we can live almost our entire lives without admitting to ourselves that what we're craving is a deep inner spiritual thirst. And that's why a few people in life who actually do reach or succeed their dreams are shocked to discover that they're longed for lifelong goals, dreams, and visions for success and achievement don't satisfy them. In fact, it's also possible that the achievement and successes that are present in our life actually, um, what's the word, amplify the thirst because we become aware of how uh, empty we are even though we've achieved it. So let's pray together. Father, we're going to lean into you and ask you to stir up in us an awareness, an alertness to the depth of our thirst. And I pray for those who have some way in their life have felt marginalized, unworthy, separated from regular culture, people groups, Maybe they're in one tribe and they've always longed to be in another tribe. Maybe they're in one friendship group and can't get over how they're not included in the other friendship group. Maybe it's um, some of us who are in one socioeconomic category and we are disgusted and disappointed that we're not in the other socioeconomic category. 
Maybe we see what someone else has and we say, if I had that, I could get rid of this longing. God, I pray that just spiritually, dynamically, miraculously you would intervene and that you would help that heart see so clearly that what they crave is the life-giving water of Jesus as their source of satisfaction. We pray that you do some surgery on our hearts together. Do some surgery on our inner life together. And church family, while you're sitting there, would you mind doing something for me? If you're not comfortable doing this, you don't have to. I don't want you to feel like you're coerced. But if you're comfortable doing this, would you just raise a couple of hands to heaven? Would you just raise a couple of hands to heaven? Uh, of course, preferably yours. Just raise your hands to heaven. God, we're in, we're in need. We're in need. And I, I, I love our church family, God, and I know what some of the needs are. I don't even know what all of them are. I can imagine they're so drastic. But I pray today, God, that as that longing exists for more and better and bigger, that you'd help us to see that that longing is a thirst for Jesus. That the drive that we have inside of us chasing something or someone will never be satisfied by something outside of us that you have provided life that comes from within us. Help us reach, dig down deep to the soul level source of life-giving water. More Jesus, more Jesus, more Jesus, and everything that we need to get there, to see him, to know him, you'd start to urge us along. And we pray for those that are experiencing emptiness and thirst, that their eyes would come off of those things that they need to get or the places they need to go or something that they need to have. And they would see that Jesus is saying, if you knew the gift that I could give you, you would see it's me and I provide it. God, we thank you for stirring our hearts together today, and we pray that you do this in us together in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing together here um, this song about the mystery of the work of God in our own hearts. Let's sing this together. If you're just learning to sing out loud in a group for the first time, um, we'll take our next step here together today, right? Your voice, your words your expression to God on your own and and um, let's do that together <laughs>